Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Professor Avi Loeb. Avi Loeb is a Frank B. Bird Junior Professor of Science at Harvard University, Chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative, serves as the science theory director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, as well as chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies. He is the author of four books and over 700 scientific papers. He is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. In 2012, Time selected Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. Remember to subscribe to Event Horizon so you never miss an episode. Avi Loeb, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Doctor, I recently heard that you secured funding for the uh, expedition to pick up the interstellar meteorite. Do you do you have a time frame for when when the expedition is going to happen? Yeah, that depends on the boat that we uh, select and its availability, and also on the weather and other considerations. So we are now engaged in the process of finalizing. The details, and uh, we already have a very good idea of what uh, is the machinery that we will use uh, for the expedition: a sled and a magnet, and um, and also we are trying to localize the uh, area where we will do the search uh, as much as possible. It's very exciting because if we find those fragments, uh, they will represent the first time that humanity uh, collected material uh, from an object that came from outside the solar system. And we could potentially demonstrate that even if it was natural, uh, we will find different isotope ratios and uh, show that it came from outside the solar system. It's not like the rocks that we saw before. So in that way, it's very exciting. But just imagine another scenario where we find that it's made of an alloy that was artificially produced because nature doesn't put those elements together in that way. So that could demonstrate that it's artificial in origin, perhaps a spacecraft. And uh, if we do find a big enough piece, uh, I already promised the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York City uh, that I will bring it 
and put it on exhibit there. For us, it will represent modernity. Uh, for whoever sent it, it's uh, ancient history. Now, about the interstellar meteorite and its unusually tough makeup, I was reading a uh, an article, I believe in an astronomy magazine recently, that detailed micrometeoroid research that seems to find unusually pure titanium sometimes inside these things. And, you know, we also see titanium associated with supernovae. So my question is, is if, if, if this turns out to be something natural like a supernova bullet that uh, you and Amir mentioned in your paper, would, it, would titanium do that? I mean, would that be tough enough to uh, show the characteristics? Uh, definitely, but it could be something else. And um, what we did find, uh, based on the data that the U.S. government released, is that these are number one and number three among 273 space rocks in terms of their material strength. And there is uh, a chance of less than one part in 10,000 uh, for them to originate from the same population of space rocks as the one that we see in the solar system. So it's very likely that the origin is special. Uh, and the question is, what is it? It could be artificial, as I mentioned before, or it could be natural from a source that we never imagined. Then one possible source is an exploding star. Uh, about 30 years ago, I wrote a paper trying to explain those bullets that are observed coming out, uh, being shot out, uh, of an exploding star, uh, the Vila supernova remnant. We see those big bullets uh, because they produce a wake uh, or a shock, bow shock in the surrounding gas and that emits uh, X-rays that we see. And the question is whether there are um, a lot of small bullets, uh, two of which we saw as meteors, perhaps that would explain their high speed and material strength, but that's all uh, just a hypothetical possibility. And for us uh, to figure it out, we need more data. And um, it could be a variety of uh, materials. Uh, uh, in an exploding star of the most common type, uh, a core collapse supernova, where the core of a massive star collapses, uh, often what you get is iron out of it. Um, and uh, nothing more exotic. Uh, very heavy elements like uh, titanium uh, are usually produced in other types uh, of uh, uh, circumstances. For example, if uh, two neutron stars, so usually a supernova uh, basically um, ejects the envelope of the star, but then the core of the star ends up making a neutron star, which is an object the size of a city like Boston about 12 kilometers in radius and the mass of the sun, roughly 1.4 typically the mass of the sun. And uh, it's just like a giant nucleus. It has nuclear density. Um, and uh, when two such neutron stars uh, come together in a pair, uh, they eventually merge as a result of the emission of gravitational waves. And, um, a little bit of neutron mat matter is being ejected. A few percent of the mass of the neutron stars is being ejected into sp uh, space. And, and there it starts decaying into very heavy elements uh, because neutron matter is not stable. So that's how you make um, 
elements that are rare, like gold, for example, and uh, titanium. And so um, these are more exotic processes. That's why gold is uh, very precious for us because it's rare, uh, because these circumstances of two neutron stars coming together are uh, realized at a rate that is much smaller than core collapse uh, supernovae. So, so, um, but if we were to live on a planet near uh, the merger of two neutron stars, gold would have been very common for us in that environment. Uh, and uh, obviously it would not have the value that we, it has on Earth. So it's all um, a matter of location, like real estate agents say, location, location, location. If we were near a neutron star merger, both uh, uranium and gold, the sources of all evil on Earth, would be very abundant. So I, my, my uh, advice based on this realization is to never get into a conflict with a civilization that originated near a neutron star merger because they have a lot of nuclear weapons from the uranium that was cupiously produced there. Providing that one can actually have abiogenesis near that much uranium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, we do have an instance where we have supernova evidence um, on Earth, and that is in the form of atoms of, I believe, Iron 60 th that were recovered from the ocean floor that the only explanation for them is uh, nearby supernovae occurring and we end up with you know atoms of material from it and that shows that it's possible for some kind of cataclysmic event to produce matter that actually does cross the interstellar medium and end up on earth right oh definitely the interstellar medium is enriched by many generations of supernova so the first stars were made of the hydrogen and helium that were left from the Big Bang and they didn't have any heavy elements, but then uh, they were mostly massive stars that eventually exploded. The first uh, supernovae were, uh, were very different than the present day supernovae because the stars uh, didn't have uh, heavy elements to start with. So uh, the cores of these massive stars reached very high temperatures and produced electron-positron pairs. And these are called pair uh, supernovae um, and uh, uh, those uh, pair instability supernovae uh, ejected the first heavy elements into the surrounding gas and, and then after that the next generation of star formed and uh, those stars uh, were already enriched and they ended up making supernova as we know them and enrich the gas even more. So if you imagine a box full of gas converting it into stars over time, it gets more and more enriched over time. So this box is basically a galaxy, and but the galaxy itself, like the Milky Way, it didn't start uh, at its present size. It started small and then more and more matter fell into it. So... Uh, we can monitor the star formation history of galaxies in the universe. And actually, most of the stars from billions of years before the sun. And those stars enriched the gas within the Milky Way galaxy long before the sun formed. So the sun has a relatively high abundance of heavy elements from all those massive stars that exploded in its vicinity. And what you were referring to is the most recent 
the, the, the closest supernova that took place. And that's what the evidence shows that there was a nearby supernova. But long before that one, there were others. And uh, all of the heavy elements produced in the interior of those exploding stars were mixed. Uh, so the gas mixed them uh, as a result of turbulence. And, and so uh, obviously we are the product of those generations of stars because we use uh, oxygen and carbon for uh, the chemistry of life. Those elements did not exist in the Big Bang. So we are sort of an afterthought. Uh, the universe was not designed uh, to give birth to humans uh, or any other form of life because the heavy elements were not produced in the Big Bang. They just uh, were a side product of the stars that formed in the universe. And we, when we trace our uh, history back in time, our, our roots, cosmic roots, date back to the first stars. And that's why the web images are so exciting. They go back to a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. We can see those early galaxies. And, and actually, at the White House uh, on... July 11th this year, uh, 2022, there was a ceremony to celebrate the deepest images from the Webb telescope. And uh, Bill Nelson, the head of NASA, uh, said, uh, Mr. President, uh, what you're looking at are stars that formed uh, 13 bo uh, 30, more than 13 billion years ago. Um, and uh, that was an unusual statement given that... Uh, the White House, uh, you know, the cornerstone of uh, DC politics, often worries about uh, intervals of time of four years between elections. And here uh, there was an image that discusses 13, boy, uh, 13 billion years ago, you know, how the universe looked like. And I think we should all be at awe that, uh, that humans are able to build such telescopes and NASA uh, really did a fantastic job with the Webb Telescope. I was on the first um, advisory committee, for, uh, scientific advisory committee. Back then it was called um, the Next Generation Space Telescope. And it's really a fantastic feeling to uh, see that it came to fruition in, in such a perfect way. It's performing even better than expected. Now, speaking of very fast-moving objects... Um, we'll get back to that in a moment, but before then, um, this recent paper from Ukraine regarding UAP, and you recently authored a paper actually just a few days ago that, that analyzes that and concludes that the best, uh, explanation for them are artillery shells, which obviously given the situation in Ukraine, that wouldn't be unexpected. So how did you determine what these UAP were? Yeah, so I should first start by saying there was this paper was posted on the archive um, in late uh, August 2022, and for a month and a half I resisted the idea of reading it in detail because um, I mean the, the, there were more than a dozen emails that I received asking me to review it, to look at it, to read it, including by the authors. And I just thought it makes no sense because uh, in science, we very often want to reduce as much as possible the noise level so that we can 
detect the signal. So if you are looking for unidentified objects of extraterrestrial origin, the last place on Earth that you would go to is Ukraine, a military conflict zone where there are lots of things flying in the sky. And why would you choose that region to find something from beyond this Earth? I mean, uh, so to me, it sounded like uh, this kind of a statement of finding unidentified objects by astronomers in Ukraine, that, that doesn't really make sense. That if anyone wants to find such objects, one should go somewhere else. And, um, and moreover, I should say, I, I'm not so keen on going to such places where there is a military conflict, because if you were to record data there, uh, it could identify classified objects that, um, either side uses. And then you get into issues of national security and uh, much of the information about such objects is classified and you can get into trouble by releasing it openly in the scientific literature. So why would anyone want to publish data on what flies in the sky above Ukraine? That bothered me and I simply said, I'm I'm not interested in looking into it. Uh, But then... uh, uh, on uh, Monday this week, just a, a few days ago, um, I had a special visit by um, a, a high-level official from Washington, D.C., who came to my home and uh, basically encouraged me to write a scientific paper about unidentified aerial phenomena and what, what we could imagine uh, coming to the Earth from a, an advanced civilization. And... I asked him uh, uh, within whether he wants it within uh, our understanding of physics, and he said, of course. And, okay, so uh, he left at around uh, 7 p.m., and I then uh, uh, wrote down a formula for an object of any given size moving at some speed through the air, through the atmosphere, um, assuming that the speed is larger than the speed of sound. Um, Uh, more than uh, 300 meters per second or so. And uh, for such a supersonic object, if it moves very fast, uh, it would uh, heat up the air around it because uh, it it would create a bow shock, uh, a shock wave, uh, a sonic boom, if you want, uh, in the surrounding air. So I I calculated how much power uh, in radiation will be released by that because we have a lot of data on meteors that I already knew. Uh, And uh, then I went to bed at around uh, 9.30 p.m. But just before I fell asleep, I um, uh, remembered that Ukrainian paper. So I wanted to check it the following morning. I woke up at 4.30 a.m. before my morning jog and looked at the numbers that they mentioned in that paper for the first time and realized they give me all the numbers. They say there are objects at a distance of about 10 kilometers uh, that are moving up to 15 kilometers per second. I should say that this speed is more than the escape speed from Earth, which is 11 kilometers per second. So they were claiming 15 kilometers per second and uh, these objects have a size of 10 meters. Okay, Very big, you know, just like the size of a jet plane, uh, but moving at a speed uh, that is more than the escape speed from the Earth, uh, at most at a distance of 10 kilometers or so. So I plugged the in the, these numbers into the formula that I had from the previous night. 
And that was just like someone sending me a baseball uh, in a way that allows me to kick it out of the field. Uh, it was such an easy thing for me to take these numbers, plug them into my formula and get how much power is released. And I found that you end up with more than the electric power consumption on Earth for every object. You, you will end up with a fireball that is more brilliant than all the lights put together on Earth, which sounds crazy because these people claimed, the astronomers who reported about these objects, they claimed that they are dark. <laughs> they are darker than the sky. So these objects actually block light. They don't produce any light. And that sounded to me like a contradiction. But then I realized my formula actually says that the amount of power released scales with distance to the fifth power. So that means that if you bring the distance down by a factor of 10, you will get a power that is completely reasonable, that you would not see in the day daytime. And uh, that means that instead of at 10 kilometers, these objects should be at one kilometer distance. And that means that their size, instead of being 10 meters, would be one meter. And that means that their speed instead of being 10 kilometers per second or 15 kilometers per second, would be just one to one and a half kilometers per second because they see them moving on the sky in angle. And uh, translating that to a speed means that you need to know the distance. So if the distance is down by a factor of 10, the speed is down by a factor of 10. And then I realized both the speed and the size of the objects is exactly the same as artillery shells. So... Ukraine is a milita in military conflict. Artillery shells must be common. That's what they saw. That was a piece of cake to, to basically conclude that. And I submitted a paper within a couple of hours uh, on this because I had the formula and I had everything written down. And then it was really interesting because to me, it was obvious that they made a mistake by at least a factor of 10. I mean, in principle, it could be more than a factor of 10 in distance. Uh, this could be for example, just bullets shot from a machine gun that is 100 meters uh, from the observatory. I mean, I cannot tell, but definitely not farther than one kilometer because then you would get these fireballs that would be impossible to avoid. So then I thought, okay, well, that's an obvious conclusion. Everyone would agree with me, but what do I see? People saying, Oh, he didn't take into account the possibility. I mean, these are UAP advocates on Twitter saying he didn't consider the possibility that these objects could pass through air without interacting with it. And to that I say, well, how were these objects discovered? They were discovered by being dark. That means that they block light. What is light? Light is electromagnetic, an electromagnetic entity an electric field, magnetic field that interacts with objects. So if you block light, the object must have electromagnetic interactions. And therefore, it must interact with the molecules of air because the molecules of air interact electromagnetically. So you cannot, on the one hand, claim that an object blocks light and doesn't block molecules of air because molecules of air interact electromagnetically. And in fact, they have a larger cross-section than light has for interacting with matter. So it's easier to interact with molecules of air than it is with the particles of light, photons. And so altogether, what that means is if you see a dark object that blocks light, as these observers claim, it's just a matter of 
logic to conclude that it must push the molecules of air when it moves through air because it also blocks light. And as a result, it will create this fireball if it were at 10 kilometer distance. There is no way out of that. You cannot invent an object that will block light and not block molecules of air. There is no way. So um, then I hear from a reporter from uh, uh, Vice, uh, Matthew Galt, and he sends me an email from the observers, (laughs) from the astronomers, uh, the lead astronomer of the team, uh, Boris Zilaev, says, Avi Loeb is a theorist. We are experimentalists. We just report what we see. Uh, To which I say, well, both experimentalists and theorists are obligated to use logic. You can't avoid thinking. You cannot just say, I'm an observer. I don't want to think about what I see. Because if you claim something, if you claim a certain distance, you need to check whether your method of inferring the distance might be wrong. And if the implications of having that distance are incompatible with what you see, then you made a mistake. And the method they use to infer the distance is really very faulty. It's not as if they had a lot of sites where they triangulated and found these dark objects from multiple directions so they could pinpoint the distance very accurately. They didn't have that data. So... My point is you have to use your head, you have to think about it and realize that you can't have a distance of 10 kilometers with those velocities because you you would see a fireball. And therefore the distance needs to be smaller. Uh, And then I get an email from Mick West, who is the official UAP debunker. Okay, so he made a name for himself. He's not a scientist, but made a name for himself for debunking unidentified aerial phenomena over the years. And he also has a problem with my interpretation. So I'm getting attacked from all directions. You know, when you when you see people shooting at you from opposite directions, you think to yourself, maybe I should duck down. Uh, and then the bullets would reach the other side. Uh, in my case, I had a bulletproof shield of science. So I don't care if they shoot at me because I have science to protect me. So Mick West, what is his problem? His problem is if you look at one of the figures, the images that were released by the Ukrainian astronomers, they had several snapshots of a single object separated by 0.02 seconds. So you have three images of the dark object separated by the same amount of time. But what you find is that the distance projected on the sky between the third snapshot and the second snapshot is bigger than the distance projected on the sky between the second snapshot and the other one under it. So the claim is, by Mick West, the object must be accelerating because it moves at a different speed at different times. And only an insect can do that. An artillery shell will not do that. 
because it moves at a constant speed while you're taking these frames. So you would see always the same length um, across the sky traveled by this object. And so <laughs> I said to Mick, have you never seen a train in your life? When the train is far away, it moves very little across your field of view. But when it comes close to you, it just zooms by you. How is that possible if the train is moving at a constant speed? How is it possible that projected on your field of view, it moves very slowly far away and it moves very fast close to you? Did you ever think about it? The answer is that the angle across which it moves over a, a fixed period of time is inversely proportional to the distance. And so the angle is small at large distances and it's big at small distances. So when looking at a, an artillery shell that is either approaching Kiev or going away from Kiev, you will see that at close distances it moves a lot and at large distances it moves little, even if it moves actually at a constant speed. Unless it doesn't aim at Kiev or doesn't aim away from Kiev. In which case, it's a very special coincidence that it moves exactly perpendicular to your line of sight. So you can actually, by assuming that it moves at a constant speed, figure out the angle at which it moves. Anyway, so I <laughs> received all these ricochets, or you might call it uh, hostile... Uh, fire from all directions and you know I uh, and I don't really care how many likes I have on Twitter that's completely irrelevant and uh, then within a couple of days uh, I read a report in a Hungarian magazine quoting a statement made by the Kiev Observatory which is handled by the National Academy of Science of Ukraine and they say we believe that the distance measurements are not reliable. That in fact, what was reported in this paper is not to be trusted in terms of distance. So they basically sided with me. And they say we have no responsibility for what these authors, these astronomers wrote. So what's the bottom line, what's the lesson from this? First of all, it was a revelation to me because here is a situation where I just follow, you know, simple rational thinking and I'm being attacked from all directions. Now, should I really pay attention to what these people are saying? If uh, some people want to believe, they don't want to think. Other people just say, we just observe these things. We don't know what we, uh, what they mean, uh, you know, uh, these are scientists, you know, the, the astronomers that reported about it. And other people just don't understand what's going on. Like, And you get caught in the middle of that where my interpretation is so simple and makes so much sense, you know, in a war zone to either have bullets from a machine gun or, or artillery shells flying around. And that's what these dark objects are, rather than talking about an object the size of a, a, an airplane moving at a, escape speed from the Earth at a distance of 10 kilometers that would unavoidably produce a fireball. So, you know, that was interesting. It's a teaching moment for me to basically, sort of like a litmus test to see 
Who is reasonable? Now, it seems to me that it would be an easy question to solve um, <laughs> in the yeah. sense that all you have to do is repeat the observation somewhere else that's not in a war zone. And if you don't see anything, then there it is, right? Exactly. But one thing that people have to keep in mind, which is often being uh, suggested, is you can't have a situation that is logically inconsistent. You can't, on the one hand, claim that you see an object because it blocks light, but it doesn't block air molecules. That is not possible, okay? If the object passes through the air without disturbing it, it will not block light, okay? Uh, even if you imagine taking a tennis net, you know, a, a net with big holes in it, moving it through air, it will still carry some air with it and it will not be uh, uh, opaque, you know, and the claim is these objects are opaque. So if you imagine an opaque object moving through air, it will definitely push the air. And if you move it at the escape speed from the earth, it will generate a fireball. Okay, so there is no way around that. And you can't avoid logical thinking by saying, I believe, or saying someone else said that. If someone else said that, it doesn't make it true. And a lot of people think, oh, under oath, if people testify under oath uh, in front of Congress, that is sufficient data to establish the scientific credibility of the claim that they make. Well, I should remind people that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, prisoners are put in jail because of statement made by some people under oath, and then a DNA test finds them innocent. Okay, uh, there are many examples of that, uh, even people that were put on on death row. Uh, humans are not scientific detectors. When we don't have anything better, we use it in the legal system. But you can't write a scientific paper based on what humans tell you. Okay, It's not a matter of a personal experience. We need instruments that collect quantitative data and can repeat the measurement under similar circumstances. That's the foundation of science. And you, when you have instruments recording data, you do not need to require that they are put under oath. These instruments just record whatever they record. You don't need to ask them questions. Now, this seems to me to be getting into the territory of special pleading. Uh, so people are come up with a notion and they work backwards to try to to try to get there and that doesn't work in science at all well it doesn't work because we know what happened with galileo galilei that was put in house arrest i keep bringing this example because it's sort of the foundation of modern science uh most people at the time did not believe in what he said they thought the earth is at the center of the universe but of course canceling galileo was not the solution the solution was to collect more data and realize that he was right and there are three modern examples of the same situation. Uh, you know, uh, for example, Fritz Zwicky in 1933 discovered dark matter. He noticed that clusters of galaxies have galaxies moving around at a thousand kilometers per second, and there is not enough matter to bind them by gravity. So uh, there must be some additional matter that is invisible to us, he suggested. He called it dark matter. And for 40 years, Astronomers dismissed it. They ridiculed it. And now it's the foundation 
of our understanding of the universe, that this matter that we can't find in the solar system exists. Okay, so that was all based on evidence. And uh, it was ridiculed early on. So Zwicky would have been cancelled on social media today if, if he was under the same situation. Uh, and then another example is exoplanets. You know, they, they were, when I started astrophysics, the common lore was that Earth is very special, that in fact no other sun-like star may have a planet like the Earth. And then, of course, we found that somewhere between a few percent to a hundred percent of all the sun-like stars have a planet like the Earth. So by now it's folklore. Everyone says, every young person would say, of course. Every young person would say, of course there is dark matter in the universe. But it was not obvious to start with and it was ridiculed to start with. And it was not popular to start with. And so when you say thinking inside the box, the box is not in the right place very often. So if you think inside the box, you will not find the truth. Because the box will move around depending on the direction of the wind uh, at the time, which is basically just completely uh, arbitrary in a way. And then there is another example of um, Cecilia Payne-Kopashkin, who finished the first uh, PhD in astronomy at uh, uh, Radcliffe and Harvard. And uh, she found out that it looks from the data that she was analyzing that the surface of the sun is made mostly of hydrogen. And on her PhD committee was Henry Norris Russell, the most distinguished astronomer that worked on stars at the time, the, the director of the Princeton University Observatory. And he dissuaded her from making that statement. He said, everyone knows this is impossible. The earth and the sun are made of the same materials. And then for four years, he tried to prove her wrong. And then... After four years, he published a paper saying that she was right because the data shows what she showed. And all of these cases are examples of situations where the mainstream in science just didn't have the correct idea. What I'm saying here is that it's not just the mainstream in science. It's also the outskirts of science when people claim things that are incorrect, they have a hard time adjusting their view. Uh, and it's also true of the public and poli politics in general. So it looks like this phenomenon is very prevalent in human interactions with nature. And what's the best way to avoid it? The best way is to be humble, basically not pretend that we know more than we actually know. Use what we already know, like the laws of physics should be the foundation of the way we understand what we see. And then, of course, revise them if uh, the evidence is conclusive. But most importantly is to be guided by the evidence and not have logical inconsistencies in the interpretation of the evidence. Now, throughout this, this interview, we have had a theme going of speed, speed inside the atmosphere and speed inside space as far as interstellar objects go. Is there an upper limit, however, that we can expect nature to produce as far as high speeds go before it must be a techno signature? In other words, something's moving so fast that 
there does not seem to be a process in nature to accelerate it to those speeds at very high relativistic speeds. And the second part of my question is, if such a thing exists, a technosignature based on high speed, would we even see it if it passed through the solar system? Yeah, that, those are excellent questions. So I actually wrote the papers on natural processes that could bring objects, big objects, even a planet or a star, close to the speed of light. So let me give you an example. Um, a black hole is a structure of space-time that is extreme. That If, if uh, test particles move in the vicinity of the black hole, they move close to the speed of light. So now imagine two black holes near each other. In a pair, they move in an orbit. If a star happens to pass in between them, they would act like a pinball machine. Uh, Based using the, the force of gravity, they would kick the star close to the speed of light because these black holes are moving near the speed of light if they are close together. And you might say, okay, well, that's a hypothetical situation. Does nature make it? The answer is yes, because we know that the Milky Way galaxy has a black hole at its center. The Nobel Prize was awarded for that a few years ago. Uh, we even have an image of it. We know that the sister galaxy of the Milky Way, Andromeda, has a black hole a little bit more massive than the one in th at the center of the Milky Way, which is 4 million, light, uh, 4 million times the mass of the Sun. Uh, and the other one is a few times bigger. Uh, so when the two... And, and we also see the Andromeda galaxy approaching us, basically on a collision course with the Milky Way. So within a few billion years, the two galaxies will collide. And I actually wrote a paper in 2007 forecasting what will come out of this collision of the Milky Way and Andromeda. It's inevitable. We see Andromeda approaching us. It will get bigger in the sky and eventually will merge with the Milky Way in a few billion years. The two black holes will sink to the center of the merger remnant. Our galaxy will become uh, in the shape of a football, uh, very different from the disc-like shape that it has now. These are called elliptical galaxies that are formed as a result of mergers between disk galaxies like the Milky Way and Andromeda. And the two black holes will sink to the center of this merger remnant, which I called Milcomeda in 2007. So at the center of Milcomeda, the, the merger of the Milky Way and Andromeda, uh, there will be a pair of black holes that will come together, first as a result of the friction they have on the gas and the stars in the core of the merger remnant, but eventually as a result of emi the emission of gravitational waves once they come uh, closer than the size of the solar system. And there will be stars in that neighborhood. And some of them could get kicked close to the speed of light. Even if they have planets next to them, like the Earth, the planets could remain bound to the stars when they get kicked out close to the speed of light. So that's a very interesting situation. If, if there are any interstellar travel agencies that sell tickets for a ride on a habitable planet around a star that was kicked out 
from a pair of black holes. I would love to buy that ticket because you go out of the center of a galaxy, travel through the entire galaxy and eventually emerge into the universe at large and you are moving close to the speed of light. It's the most fantastic journey that you can imagine. And what I'm saying is that it's an entire planetary system being ejected. It's the star and planets close to it. So these are big objects. There is no way we can build an engine that would push a star to the speed of light. That's really difficult. But nature can do it. So that's one situation. Then I also wrote a Scientific American essay and after that followed on, on it with a, a scientific paper where I said that in principle, you know, if you have a light sail, um, basically a very thin film of material, and you place it uh, close enough to a massive star that is about to explode within roughly 100 times the Earth-Sun separation, then the amount of light produced in the explosion would push this light sail close to the speed of light. So this is a natural process. You can think of these light sails that are parked at that distance from a star that is about to explode. You can think of them as dandelion uh, seeds that are uh, carried by the wind, in this case from the supernova, from the explosion. But in principle, that's another way to get a ride. It's sort of, you can imagine the uh, uh, civilizations parking light sails near a star that is about to explode, just like surfers uh, waiting for a giant wave on the beaches in Hawaii. Uh, they are waiting for a wave that will carry them. In this case, it's a wave of light coming from the exploding star that will carry these light sails. So I can imagine natural processes that bring you close to the speed of light. And it will not be the signature of technology if you see something moving very fast, but there are many other ways to identify a technological relic. The simplest is to take a close-up photograph. If it has bolts and screws on it, and there is a label saying made on exoplanet so-and-so, then you know that it came from a technological civilization. If we go to, the, uh, to Papua New Guinea and, and scoop the ocean floor and fly, find that the fragments of the first interstellar meteor was, were uh, made of uh, an alloy that net nature doesn't put together, that will prove that it's most likely technological in origin. Uh, so there are ways... Uh, if you see, for example, a gadget at the bottom of the ocean and you can press a button on it, I actually got an email from uh, someone who said, please don't, if you do find a gadget near Papua New Guinea, please don't press any button because it endangers all of us. I said, don't worry about it. I already promised I'll bring it for, ex uh, for an exhibit in the Museum of Modern Art because for them, it, you know, for us, it represents modernity. Uh, for whoever sent it, it represents ancient history. Um, so there are ways to find an artificial origin of an object that has have nothing to do with the speed. And to answer your, your other question, um, the answer is no. Astronomers so far were looking for rocks, uh, the rocks that we find, space rocks that move through the solar system at uh, a percent of a percent of the speed of light. 
10 to the minus 4 of the speed of light. A few tens of kilometers per second. This is roughly the speed of a chemical rocket, the, the speed of all the spacecraft that we launched so far. And that's roughly the characteristic speed of rocks in the vicinity of Earth. It's also the speed of the Earth around the sun. Okay, so 10 to the minus 4 of the speed of light. And that's what astronomers are looking for because so far they were focused on finding rocks from the solar system. And if an object were to move at a fraction of the speed of light much larger than that, it could move at 10 to the minus 3 of the speed of light or 10 minus 2 of the speed of light or a tenth of the speed of light or close to the speed of light, they would never notice it because it moves so fast across the field that the astronomers would think that it's a fluke or some artifact in their telescope or data collection system. They would completely ignore it. The software that exists right now does not look for such objects. But we should be open-minded, and that's what we are planning to do when we look at the data coming from the Vera Rubin Observatory that uh, will go online in a year or so. Um, I asked, actually, uh, some of the people who developed the software, and I said, are you searching for anything moving fast? And they said, no, in fact, we are just looking for objects that are bound to the solar system. So, you know, many times in science, if you put blinders, you will never find anything new. And uh, that's what we should avoid. Uh, in order to find something new, we should allow for things that are not rocks. Now, in regards to, um, to trying to see objects moving very rapidly, very fast, if it's possible for a mechanism like a binary black hole system or something like that to accelerate something. Could there be a population of relativistic asteroids or natural objects moving at very high speed, uh, moving around the galaxy? And if so, if one of those, we know an interstellar meteorite did it. So if one of those actually hit earth, what would that be like moving at say half the speed of light? Yeah. So we have to keep in mind that anything moving faster than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy, will leave the galaxy, okay? It will not be bound. So you only have one shot of such objects passing by. Or, um, and the best example is light. If you imagine, you know, SETI experiments, what's the problem with the traditional SETI approach? It's that it's looking for a radio signal, okay? And the problem with the radio signal is that it moves at the speed of light. So if the sender sent it a billion years ago, it's now a billion light years away. You will never detect it. If that civilization is not transmitting right now, I mean, at the time such that the light travel time corresponds to the time when they transmitted it and you're observing it now. If you missed the light, you will never see it again. And that's true for anything moving faster than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy, which is at the vicinity of the sun. It's about 500 kilometers per second or if you want about a tenth of a percent of the speed of light. So that's not a very high speed. And anything above a tenth of a percent of the speed of light will likely escape from the Milky Way, meaning that it goes just once from the source, nearby, and out to intergalactic space. That's not good news for you to find it. But if there were lots of, for example, chemical rockets that were launched 
at a speed that is 10 times smaller, which is the speed that we launched our interstellar probes like New Horizons, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, or um, Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11, then these objects will remain bound gravitationally to the Milky Way disk. And it's, you can think of it as a basket that collects all the objects that were ever launched at the speed of chemical rockets from civilizations throughout the last 13.8 billion years. So that's, that's a treasure that we should look for. Uh, that's why I established a Galileo project to look for such objects. And that's why the Vera Rubin Observatory will be instrumental at looking for such objects. But anything moving more than 10 times faster is not around anymore. Now, as a result of that, there will be very fewer objects that are moving very fast because they, do, they just go once and leave the system, whereas the others that move much more slowly are still bound to the system. So, so the number of such, uh, the, the flux of objects that are moving very fast is probably very small. And even if you consider the number of objects uh, that are moving slowly, uh, the chance of them hitting the Earth is really small. So, for example, the interstellar meteors were an example of objects that came from outer space, from outside the solar system, and collided with Earth. And based on the statistics, we estimate that, you know, a, a meteor, the uh, roughly meter size, uh, a, a little bit bigger than a basketball, uh, collides with the Earth uh, once per decade uh, if, if it originates from outside the solar system. So, uh, so, the so that's at a relatively modest speed of, uh, you know, of, of the order of a percent of a percent of the speed of light. And if you were to consider very fast objects, I would say it's very unlikely that we have to worry about them. But you know, once again, you know, also we know the history of Earth and we know that there was a major catastrophe triggered by a giant asteroid, the, roughly the size of a city uh, that collided with Earth 66 million years ago and killed the dinosaurs, uh, Chicxulub. And it created also a huge tsunami in the ocean. There was a huge wave of water <laughs> that uh, resulted from that collision. Uh, but... Other than that, you know, we are not aware of a global catastrophe of major proportions uh, that was triggered since then. Um, and if there was a big object, let's say the size of a person moving close to the speed of light that would collide with Earth, that would be major, very major. Now, my last question for you is way up there in the clouds, but that's, that's what I do. If you had an interstellar war, alien civilizations, two of them fighting. Could this idea be weaponized? In other words, could you target an object? If in principle, I imagine it would be very hard, but the DART mission was hard. You know, we can hit asteroids if we want to. Could you destroy a planet by sending a relativistic uh, asteroid at it, target it? Yeah, you can in principle. But my sense is that civilizations that survive for very long times are, more, are not militaristic. They are not uh, uh, aggressive in that sense. They will not initiate wars because 
you know, you can win 99 out of 100 wars, but the one that you lose may kill you as a civilization. And, and therefore, in order for, to survive over long periods of time, you better adapt a different strategy. And the way I think of a very advanced civilization is that it's so advanced that it doesn't care about the others. It's sort of like, uh, you know, a biker on a sidewalk that doesn't care about the ants uh, in the cracks of the pavement, you know, uh, and because they are completely trivial. Uh, and what I think uh, a civilization might want to do is perhaps generate self-replicating probes that go places and uh, maintain the blueprint of the civilization who sent them. It's sort of like sending monuments. And, uh, you know, humans love monuments of themselves, like they take photographs. Uh, but all of these relatively uh, simple-minded monuments that we are producing on a daily basis, they would not survive in a billion years when the sun will basically burn up uh, this, everything on the surface of Earth. All the oceans will, be, will dry up because the sun will warm up and within a billion years, none of these monuments will be around. If we want monuments that would survive over billions of years, we better send them to interstellar space. And we better do that in the form of probes that have artificial intelligence, uh, perhaps uh, 3D printing that can allow them to repair themselves and, um, and self-replicate so that you end up with uh, basically seeding the entire Milky Way galaxy with your DNA. All right, Dr. Loeb, we are out of time. Thanks again for joining us today. And we'll have to do this again as more results from the Galileo Project come out. I would be delighted. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice.